Hi, I'm Joe Feeks, editor of Poultry Health Today, and with me is Dr. Lloyd Keck. He's a senior technical services veterinarian for Zoetis. Great to see you, Lloyd. Good to see you, Joe. Now, I know you spend a lot of time in both farms and in and, and the processing plant. Um, you go out with your colleagues and, and do audits for uh, poultry companies so that they can get a better feel for the salmonella pathogen load that's going into the plant and how they might be able to address that in, in live production. When you're doing these audits, what are some of the things that, that you look for? Well, and, and they are in a sense an audit, but not, not in a formal sense. Right, uh, not so in a formal sense. Uh, a colleague like Dr. Doug Fullencheck and I will go to a farm together and then we'll follow those birds into the plant. I think the things we're looking at are just basic things in production that would, uh, in the case of salmonella, that would drive salmonella loads high. And uh, so I'm looking at general management practices, um, clean water, is the feed there on a, on a reliable basis? Do they have feed outages, which could cause birds to consume litter and maybe increase a load of salmonella? Uh, feed withdrawal, the amount of time birds are off feed prior to being uh, caught and transported to the processing plant can, we think, can impact that too. Um, I think to step back earlier in the life cycle, one of the biggest impacts is simply litter management and, or the bedding management and, and uh, how dry it's kept or whether or not it, it gets wet and that um, kind of rolls into a lot of other things about uh, water pressures and heights and availability and how that's managed too. But uh, keeping uh, uh, good dry bedding through that uh, rearing process I think is critical. And is that more difficult in farms where they're not using antibiotics to keep the litter dry? Um, I don't know if it is overall or not. I think as we've gone along with the, the no antibiotic uh, programs, we've gotten better at it. So I think we're doing a better job now than maybe we did initially as we found our way along and, and, and figured out those best practices to do that. And so um, in some cases it may be because if uh, if a company or a complex is struggling with uh, how to maintain that gut health and consequently you could have more uh, feed passage or, or moisture in the litter, then it, it could contribute to it, I suppose, but certainly not in every case. Now you talked about feed withdrawal. Um, could you walk us through that process uh, in a little more detail? At, at what point do you want to cut off the feed but, but you also don't want the, these, these chicks pecking at the litter where they're going to get more salmonella. Well, there, you know, there's been a lot of, of work and, and scientific effort, really, through the years or decades that's gone into that. But what we know is that we're, we're trying to reach that, that balance between having these birds go into the processing plant with good, strong gut or intestinal uh, strength, integrity, and then, but not having contents in the, in the GI or gastrointestinal tract that would spill out and create contamination. And, and what most arrive at is that somewhere between the last time that these birds would eat and, and be processed is eight hours. Uh, is the, seems to be a good amount of time, maybe eight to 10 hours, depending on different bird sizes and so on. And there's certain ways to, uh, to look at the GI tract and determine based on on the shape and size of the gallbladder, even color of the liver and so on, uh, what, what's appropriate. There's information out there about that. But um, 
that means feed withdrawal and then that we do try to leave water uh, as available as long as possible. Um, and uh, it gets defined differently within different companies. If you just say, well, what's your feed withdrawal time? Most people will give you the right answer. But then if you dig in the details and you say, well, uh, when was feed absolutely removed and how was it removed? Did the birds consume all the feed in the feeder pan? Or did you actually physically remove the feeder? And uh, from that point in time until they arrived at the plant, was there time where they sat on the uh, lot or in the shed at the plant versus uh, when the bird was actually processed? And so I define it as from the time that they could last take moment they could last take a bite of feed because the feed pans were lifted or raised until they were um, uh, ready to be processed, that is placed into the shackle or whatever system to, at the processing plant. Is the size of the bird a factor? Uh, can be. Uh, some people think that a bigger bird may have a little slower feed passage. I think the biggest factor and what I would encourage producers and managers to do is to really um, make these farm visits and ensure that what their programs, uh, that the programs that they have train people to follow and are written within these complexes or companies are actually being followed. Because to me, that there's no replacement for physically going to farms frequently um, randomly unannounced and making sure that these programs are, are followed because I see more lapses with that, I think, than any other aspect of it. Let's talk a little bit about vaccination. It's something that they've been doing in the broiler breeder flock for quite some time and they're probably doing it with, with more frequency now, but we're seeing a lot more vaccination of uh, broiler flocks. Uh, I saw some number that like since 2015 it's up nearly 6,000%, um, and, and the industry probably still has a long way to go with that, but uh, it, it's got to be a huge investment. How do broiler companies go about making that decision as to whether they should be vaccinating broilers? Well, I think some of that decision is simply that they, um, they monitor the incidence of salmonella, and they see these numbers uh, arising or at a higher rate they they have to um, they have customers and consumers and and they have to be aware of what the level is and trying to keep it as low as possible uh, simply from that standpoint uh, there's a regulatory component of that where it's measured and you try to maintain certain category or low level and the standards have have gotten stricter or or harder the bar's been raised it's harder to get over the the salmonella requirements if you will recently and they added a standard to parts, whereas previously it was a whole bird standard. So all of these things have driven more interest in control and part of that being vaccination. I think, um, so what I've seen is that people started out maybe giving one vaccination and, and targeting it to breeders because we know that in a lot of cases the, the progeny or broilers are, are um, infected from, from a breeder flock that may be shedding it. And uh, then, Added to that was different um, types of uh, vaccination programs to try to maybe enhance that immunity or protection in the breeder. And then, the, you know, as we, as we kept uh, going stepwise into this, we, we use a lot of interventions. And, and uh, what we're seeing today is that there's a significant 
amount of broiler vaccination that's taking place. Uh, we've done a lot of research and trials with that. Back to your 6,000 number, I think, you know, I, I couldn't have quoted that number, but I know I've seen a dramatic increase, interest and increase in vaccination all the way into the broiler house. What else could we be doing better in terms of salmonella control? Well, I think we could do more broiler vaccination. I, I don't know the actual percentage of that, but I'm guessing somewhere maybe half of the industry has, uh, has investigated vaccination. Um, there is a cost to doing that. We, some of our work has shown that there may actually be a benefit um, in terms of uh, a return to production and, and perhaps a, a point of fee conversion or so. Um, some of these uh, salmonellas seem to be more pathogenic, I've noticed over time, and so that they may actually be causing uh, morbidity or in some cases early mortality problems. So there's certainly a payback there with uh, better livability and more chickens. One final question. Um, are there other diseases that producers need to keep a closer eye on that if we do a better job controlling those will in turn have a, a lower load of salmonella going from production into processing? Well, I think so, and I think gut health is, is a big one. I think that a lot of these things, this so-called inside-out idea that, that pathogens get there by, by coming into the GI tract and then crossing the wall and becoming what we say systemic or spread throughout the, uh, a bird's organ systems. So I think if you can maintain good gut health, and there's probably two, several components, but the two main ones that come to mind when I think about it are controlling coccidiosis and secondarily controlling necrotic enteritis or clostridial gut diseases. And they, they kind of are hand in glove, they fit together. And, and if you can, can manage those, um, then I think you uh, do protect the, uh, you don't have the, the low-grade or non-specific enteritis at times, and um, therefore you don't leave that, uh, you, you maintain that barrier that prevents some of these other uh, diseases from happening, including, I think, a link to salmonella and gut health. Okay, good insights, Lloyd, thank you very much. Thank you, We've Joe. been talking to Dr. Lloyd Keck, he's a Senior Technical Services Veterinarian at Zoetis. Really appreciate you coming by. Thank you.